Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 59. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 59, uh, finishing up the second part to this series in Isaiah that we've, that we've been in since the beginning of this year. Uh, the series, if, if you haven't been with us uh, before today, is not a series going through every single verse in the whole book of Isaiah, but rather it's a series that tries to introduce a lot of the main themes in Isaiah. It's a huge book. It's really hard to, to swallow the whole thing. So we're going in and finding the, the, the priorities that are most important to this book and taking examples that are good, clear uh, representatives of what's in the book and trying to get a good handle on them as a way of getting a taste of the book on the whole. And the section we're in right now is trying to understand all of the things that Isaiah points to as the reasons that Israel got judged. Isaiah is a prophecy of judgment as well as hope. It's a prophecy against all of the things that, that had happened in this society that meant judgment was the only path forward. What we've talked about, a sort of umbrella term that we've used for understanding everything that was wrong in Israel is the problem of trust. It all, was, it all stemmed from the fact that they had trusted the wrong things, that they'd failed to trust God's promises to them, they'd failed to trust that he was trustworthy, and they had instead turned to powerful nations that were next to them, tried to make alliances that would make them more secure. They turned to idols that they themselves built to their exact specifications so they could control their own futures. And they'd ultimately turn to themselves, to their own resources, to what they brought to the table. That's what they were trusting in. Now, what we want to look at today, a passage that's representative of another big chunk of material in Isaiah, is a look at the way the society was operating at the time. At the way that Israel and its people were treating each other. Because what we're going to see is that the misplaced trust we've talked about in earlier weeks trusting in things like powerful neighbors or idols, failing to trust in God, has a look to it in society. It causes certain patterns. It affects the way we treat each other. What we're going to look at today is what I'm calling a a culture of misplaced trust. I don't mean culture like you think of, you know, a work of art as a piece of culture or, you know, American culture and what uh, what, what, what our nation is into What I mean more is just sort of the dictionary definition of it, which is a culture is just a way of relating to each other. It's a set of norms for how people interact with each other. And our passage today is an expose in the set of norms that Israel was using for how it related to each other, and it is an expose on what happens to a society when they fail to trust in God. And here's an analogy that that I've used before that might help you understand the connection here. What we're saying, really, is that Mistreating each other comes first and foremost from not believing in God, from not trusting that he is who he claims to be, that he can hold you up if you trust in him. One of the ways that I've, I've tried to help us visualize this before is to talk about unbelief or, or a failure to trust in God as a kind of AIDS. AIDS is the kind of disease that doesn't itself kill you, right? But it makes you vulnerable to lots of things that will kill you. That's not exactly the, the definition you'll find in the American Medical Association handbook, but that's my sort of popularization of it. AIDS is something that makes you susceptible to all kinds of, uh, to all kinds of diseases that could then kill you. It, it undermines your immune system and makes you weak. And then it shows itself up in lots of other ways. That's the way the Bible talks about trusting God. That a failure to trust in Him, an unbelief in Him, is at the source of all sorts of visible sins that we do. A lot of times we think about sin 
as things that you do or don't do, as breaking laws, as, as, as action-oriented. What we don't realize is that, at least the way the Bible presents it, that's true to an extent, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. You've got a deeper problem that's, that's made you susceptible to the kinds of sins, the things that you do and don't do that we normally think of when we think of sin. And that deeper problem is unbelief, a lack of trust in God. And this text is, is a, a wonderful example of that principle. We're going to get into it in depth this morning. If you found it, Isaiah 59, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 16. So if you found that, would you please stand with me now as a way of honoring this word that we're going to read together? This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, and no one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. And they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. And no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light. And behold, Darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those who in full vigor were like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has humbled, has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This morning what I want to what I want to do is talk about how broken cultures get broken. That's the that's the biggest subject in this text. It'll take the majority of our time. 
And then I want to talk about how broken cultures get healed. It's something that's embedded in our text and pointed ahead, and that helps point us ahead to Jesus, to what's coming in the New Testament. I'm going to talk first about how broken cultures get broken. Basically, it's this. When we refuse to trust God, what happens is that we turn each other into threats to be attacked, into competitors to be deceived, into resources to be exploited. That's what it looks like when we refuse to trust God. That's how broken cultures get broken. Now, that's a big statement. We're going to, we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking that. The text is going to get us there. It starts in the first two verses with an, with an image or a, a defense almost that you're going to need some context to understand. The first two verses open. You can tell they're, they're, they're trying to... It's almost like these verses are meant to get God off the hook for something, as if Israel was charging him with being negligent. That's exactly what's happened. They open up with the promise that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. And that's not an offer of him saving them. That's a, that's a, that's a correction to what they thought was going on. What was going on in chapter 58 is Israel was pointing at the fact that they came to the temple, they, they, they tried to obey the law on the surface at least, they were fasting, and they say, we were fasting and you haven't heard us. It's a passage that looks ahead to when Israel would have come back from, from Babylon, from their exile, and looked around and realized that they were still just this poor, insignificant country, ruled over by some foreign power, with very little hope for any kind of change anytime soon. And they would have asked what many of us may have asked at one point or another, if this is where our faith has gotten us, if this is where faith in God has gotten me, then what's the point? They were measuring God's goodness and effectiveness by the results that they, that they saw. They thought they had done all that had been asked of them. And they wondered why God hadn't delivered on his end of the bargain. And 50, chapter 59 opens by correcting them in that fundamental error. It is not that God's power isn't what he claimed it was. That his arm is shortened and can't save. The problem is not this resource you are going to. The problem is in the way you are going to him. The problem, in other words, is a user error. All of us have probably had experiences where we're trying to get something to work and we, we can't do it and we blame the thing itself when ultimately we're just not using it correctly. I mean, some of my most vivid examples of this were had to do with video games. I'll just pick on... I have this cousin. I'm just to avoid picking on myself. I'll say I have this cousin who I used to play video games with all the time. and Boy, he'd really get into it. and it was To the point that tears were involved and... And he hated to lose. And so anytime, you know, the, anytime that it, it wasn't going exactly as he planned, he would literally, he would throw the, the control. He would throw it at the TV or at the wall. That thing's broken. That thing doesn't work anymore. The game's cheating. When ultimately it was a user error, right? That's the point. That's the simple point of the first two verses. Israel's plight is due not to some problem in God, but a problem in the way they've approached him. And the problem in the way they've approached him is that though they have gone through the motions, though they, have, though they have done the things that were on paper supposed to be done, like showing up at the temple and making sacrifices and, and fasting, ultimately, they had shown the condition of their hearts and the way they treated each other. That's what chapter 58 says, and it's what chapter 59 says here. Ultimately, the problem, verse 2 says, or verse 1, uh, verse 2 and, and carries on in verse 3, is that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you verses 3 and 4 describe what's going on here the what 
Your hands are defiled with blood. They turn to violence. They were attacking each other, killing each other. It is what it says. Your fingers with iniquity points to the same thing. You're using your hands not to heal, but to wound and to destroy. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. At the heart of all broken cultures, truth becomes a liability, something that you can't, a luxury that you can't afford. You lie to protect your interests, to, to hurt other people, to protect yourself. No one enters suit justly and no one goes to the law honestly. They'd started using the system for their own resources. It's, it's a, a statement of injustice that they tried to rig the game so that it serves their interests and not others. It's what the powerful do to the weak to make sure they stay weak and to bolster their own power. It's these three things that come up three different times in this passage. It's, it's repetitive in that way. Their, their culture was defined by violence against each other, by deception of each other, by exploitation of each other. In other words, in the words of verse 8, the way of peace they do not know. Shalom, wholeness, healing, health, God's design for their society, what the law was meant to provide through trust in Him, is not known by these people. Verses 14 to 15 read like a summary of a survival of the fittest mentality justice is turned back there's nothing no room for it here righteousness stands far away truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter there's no place for it there's no room for it truth has become a liability if you want to survive you can't afford to be truthful truth is lacking in what may be the best way to describe this society he who departs from evil makes himself a prey You play by these rules or you will get killed. It's kill or be killed. Their culture is broken. It makes sense, given some of the other things we've already seen about Israel in our study, uh, that this was a time when they they were insecure as a people. They were surrounded by nations that were more powerful than them. They were torn apart by civil wars. They were, they were at each other's throats. They were trying to game the system. They were looking for any resources they could get to get, find security. That's what sent them running to alliances with pagan nations. That's what had them fashioning idols like those of the other nations, hoping they could, they, they, these idols would get on their side. And it's what has them at each other's throats now, alienated from each other, obsessed with a need to control details and weave everything they can to their advantage, even if it means killing and lying and exploitation. And it's kill or be killed. Now, the details aren't very graphic here, but we don't have a hard time imagining what this society would look like because we've seen societies like this through human history, right? I mean, even some in our own recent history. I think for us in our culture, probably when we, when we read about exploitation and violence like this, of, of whole cultures built around lies and deception, we go to societies like you know, the American slaveholding society or we go to the abuses of Nazi Germany. Uh, two of this year's Best Picture nominees, for example, had slavery at the center of this portrait. They gave us horrifying details, images that give us a taste for what that society would have been like and a taste that we just can't get out of our mouth. 
And just this week, the, the New York Times uh, reported on some research that's being done by the, uh, the Holocaust Museum in D.C. on the nature of the camp system in Europe during Nazi rule. It was fascinating reading. They started, these researchers started out expecting to find something like 7,000 camps in Europe. Camps that would have included labor camps, um, death camps, the, the sort of ones that we've seen depicted in movies, the ones we've read about like Auschwitz. They thought there was about 7,000 based on earlier information. What, the, what this news article this week reported is that so far they've found 42,500 camps from the 10-year period where the, where the Nazis were at their highest. This is a quote from the article. The numbers astound. 30,000 slave labor camps, 1,150 Jewish ghettos, 980 concentration camps. Now, Auschwitz was one of them. That's the one we know about. Think of 980 of those. 1,000 prisoner of war camps, 500 brothels filled with sex slaves, thousands of other camps used for euthanizing the elderly and the infirm, for performing forced abortions, for Germanizing prisoners or transporting victims to killing centers. Now we read, we read stories like this and we see these, these realities depicted in, in movies and we're horrified by them. We wonder, what we wonder really is, is how in the world could that happen? How can you stand by or actually be part of doing this? Uh, what Elaine Scarry teaches at Harvard, wrote a really important book on, on how this works psychologically. Uh, here's the question that drives her book. It's one that, that says it better, says what I think about when I watch these movies or, or read about this better than I can say it myself. By what perceptual process does it come about that one human being can stand beside another human being in agonizing pain and not know it? Not know it to the point where he himself inflicts it. That's the question, right? How does that work that you can stand by someone in agonizing pain and not know it, even to the point that you're the one doing it and it doesn't affect you? Part of the answer to, to Scary's uh, question and the, the answer that's, that her book explores is at the heart of contemporary philosophy today, but really is right here in this text. It's thousands of years ago in Isaiah... Part of the answer to how this happens, how it's possible, is a process that's now often called othering. A process called othering. In other words, what that means is you know who you are in large part by defining who you're not. You need to, for your own identity to be secure, you have to be able to say you're not like fill in the blank. Now, part of this is inevitable. It's how you know who's in your family and not in your family. It's how you know which gender you're part of. It's how you know what nation you're in and not in, where your citizenship is. Part of it is benign. But this othering process gets bad in a hurry. And it's at the heart of all violence and exploitation. It alienates us from each other. Because often, here's what happens. Often it's not, it, it, it's not just normal, inevitable, benign. Often we bolster our sense of self by defining others as inferior to us. And we protect ourselves by wanting to see them stay that way, right? We know who we are and come to like who we are, partly by defining other people as inferior to us, partly by taking actions 
that keep them that way. This othering process goes to the heart of all racism, imperialism, to every act of violence that's out there, that's ever been committed. What we have to do first in our minds is flip a switch that says, this person is not like me. And so they don't deserve to be treated like me. And in fact, they've got to be neutralized in case they threaten the way I want to be treated. That's the, that's the process. Now I said, what, I said that this, is, this othering process is part of the answer to this driving question of how does it work that you can stand by someone in agonizing pain and not know it and even be yourself the agent of that pain. It's part of the answer is, is this othering process that happens. But really, I think we're asking a different question. Whenever we, ultimately, the same words, we read the same question, but I think what's behind it a lot of times is, how could anyone be like that? I just can't imagine being like that. How could those monsters do the things that they do? Often when we ask that question, what we're doing is making a statement by it, that those people who committed these atrocities are not like me. The irony is that we're, we're doing some othering of our own. And we couldn't be more wrong. The fact is this, these sorts of things happen, genocide, slavery, imperialism, exploitation, large-scale things that we like to talk about as a way of reminding ourselves that we're not like them. Ultimately, those, those actions, those systemic problems stem from exactly the same perceptual process that starts up in us every time we treat somebody in a way we wouldn't want to be treated. Every time, same process. So let's get specific. Every time you hear that someone did not get the grant that they applied for, and it's one maybe that you applied for, and there's an instinct in you that's happy to hear it, you reveal in yourself the same primal instinct that leads to genocide. Their interests are not mine. They're in competition with mine. This thing has wounded them, has harmed their interests, which means it's helped mine. The same time that, every time rather, that you hear that someone else's relationship has broken up. And it makes you feel better about the fact that you don't have the relationship that you wanted. Every time that happens, even if it's just for a second, what you reveal in yourself is the same perceptual process that leads to genocide and slavery in all of its forms. You have said, they are not like me, they don't deserve what I deserve. If they have it, I don't have it. Therefore, I'm glad they don't. It's the same instinct that makes us competitive at work, makes us selfish in our relationships, makes us jealous of the success of others. All violence comes from that place, which is to say, genocide is in you. Same thing could be said about lying. We could give examples of how that works. That ultimately every time you're lying, what you're saying is that this person is a threat to my interests. They can't be trusted with the truth. I've got to protect an image of myself and therefore I am going to deceive them. That's, that's the, the process that happens every time. No matter how white the lie, even if it's just not telling the whole truth because you don't like the way it would make you say, even, even if it's spinning truths in a way that helps you, what you're doing is you're saying, I can't trust this person with the full truth. I've got to frame it for them 
to protect my interests. You've made an other out of them. Every time you manipulate somebody, even in a seemingly benign way, every time you try to control them to get something out of them, you have, you have, you have given yourself over to the same process that ultimately leads to all injustice, even the worst of it. Now, why do we do these things? Why do we other in this way? What leads to the brokenness this passage points us to and that we've seen in human history any number of times? That's the other thing this text points us to. And I think it's the key. Points, it's, points us there in two different places. But if you've been with us for the last couple of sermons, you should be having echoes of, these, of earlier passages we've considered when you see these two places and they help us understand what's going on here. Verse 4 is a summary of Israel's broken culture. It's the summary that reads, no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. And in the last two lines, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. The middle of this verse is a statement that the ESV, I don't, I don't know that it translates it the best. The best one I saw was that it's, it was really what it's saying is that they rely on emptiness. They trust in emptiness and therefore no one enters suit justly they lie to each other and all their thoughts go to mischief and iniquity because they trust what isn't real what isn't sustainable what isn't secure verse 13 says the exact same thing in a different way again it's a summary this time from the words of Israel themselves what we've done is transgressed we know our iniquities and and our sins testify against us and at the heart of verse 13 justifying or explaining why they've transgressed against God, what they say is that we have denied the Lord. They've denied, in other words, that he is who he claims to be. They have failed to trust that he is the God who loves them, who's powerful enough to secure their interests when no one else can. A God who is, who is so committed to the right that he can't tolerate any wrong. What they've said in denying him is that he doesn't care that we act this way or he's not powerful enough to do anything about it or... You know, he's not loving enough to want anything better for us or for those people that we're ripping off. That's what they've said. They've denied the Lord, and this culture is a result of it. This is the all-important connection, I think, for understanding Israel and ourselves. So I want to make sure this is clear. I'm going I'm to come at this. I'm going to come make one more pass over this to make sure this idea, this connection between trust in God and the way we treat each other is clear for you. I want to come at it through one more pass that brings in all of Israel's identity. If you're not familiar with the story of the Old Testament, one thing you should know is that near the beginning of Israel's history, God met with them after he had delivered them and given them an identity as a nation and he hands them this set of laws that's supposed to govern how they live together. And that whole set of laws is summarized. This whole set of laws that's meant to to produce peace and wholeness and health in society is summarized in two commandments. And those commandments go hand in hand. Those commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbors as yourselves. Don't miss what these two commands ultimately mean. If we were to put different words on them, what we'd be saying is that to to love God with everything you've got is to put all your chips on Him. It is to trust Him as the only thing that is the difference between you and, and, and your life and all that you want from life and, and death 
and frustration, alienation, and evil. To love him with all of your heart and soul and mind is to love him not for what he can give you, but for the fact that he is life itself. It is to put everything you have onto him. It's to trust him, in, everything, in other words. It is to rely on and to cling to God. That's command number one. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors as yourselves. Take your neighbor's identity and don't other it. Don't define it as something different from you and not worthy of being protected, but bring it into your own identity so that you love them just like you love yourself, so that you define their interests with yours, so that it's not possible for their interests to be affected and yours not be affected, so that when they are in hurting, you are hurting, and when they are rejoicing, you are rejoicing. And that, that identification with your neighbors is only possible when you are secure enough in your love for God and in his trustworthiness that you don't have to defend your interests against those that you live around. That's the ideal that's presented to Israel. And that's the ideal that they've broken here. You take God out of the picture as Israel has done in turning to other nations, in turning to idols, in turning to themselves. And what you're left with is survival of the fittest. Because apart from his care and his protection, other people become a threat to you. Apart from the security of his promises, you've got to guard your image at all costs, even if that means deceiving others to hide truth that could wound you. And apart from what he provides, what you're left with is exploiting others. Whatever you can get out of them is what you must get out of them. Whatever's going to make you and your interests more secure. Without God, you're left with kill or be killed. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's how broken cultures get broken. What we want to do in the last few minutes is look at how our text points ahead to how broken cultures, broken by a failure to trust God that turns us against each other, can ultimately be healed. The solution to this brokenness comes out beginning in verse 9 of chapter 59. Because verses 9 to 15 are as beautiful an example of confession and honesty as you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. Verse 9 Did you notice this? It's no longer a condemnation of Israel like verses 1 to 8. It's the same language as 1 to 8, but now the people who are speaking it are the ones who've been accused. They're fessing up. That's what's happening here. They are admitting that all that they've been charged with is true of them. Justice is far from us, they're saying. Righteousness does not overtake us. Yes, we wish we were in light. We want to do better, but all we see is, is darkness. We grope around like the, for the wall like the blind, and not just those whose eyes have some sort of defect in them, but as those who have no eyes. We don't even have the faculties that we might need to be better, to not sin, to not treat each other in this way. We're done. That's why the next phrase, they describe themselves as lifeless, as dead amidst, um, amongst those who, who are living. They growl like bears. I know that sounds kind of random, that, the moaning of the doves, but... In its context, it's, a, it's an image of, of hunger, of longing to be different than what they are. But there's nothing there. And verse 12 admits that the reason we found ourselves here, the reason we have no eyes, the reason we groan like bears and moan like doves is that we have sinned. Our transgressions are multiplied. Our sins testify against us. We've got nothing. Right? We're guilty. So 
So what keeps you from the kind of honest confession of weakness that we see in these verses? This first step to healing is admitting the problem that you have. The first step is in honesty about your true condition before God. That's what we see Israel taking here. What makes that hard for you? Could it be on the terms of last week's text that your image of strength in the eyes of others is functioning like a God in your life? Could it be that you so delight in the image that you've formed in the eyes of other people that you can't imagine seeing it taken away? That you so look to that image to deliver you from the things you wish weren't true about yourself behind the scenes that if you were to lose at least the good image that people have of you, you would feel like you would lose the only thing that's propping you up? Using the image of last week's text, if you feel like this image that you can't let go, that you just can't be honest and and risk losing, is propping you up, you've got it exactly backwards. If what you're living for is an image of yourself that you can't imagine seeing threatened, you need to realize that you are... You are what's propping that image up and not the other way around. Aren't you exhausted by it? Don't you see what it does to you to not be able to be honest about who you are? Don't you see that it makes you, that it makes you prone to abuse of others? Maybe even to tear them down behind their back or to their face to protect your image? Or at least to enjoy their downfall when that happens? Don't you find that protecting this image often means deception? that you've got to protect it even if it means twisting the truth? Don't you find that it drives you to use other people rather than sacrifice for them? That it drives you to attach yourself to people who celebrate the image that you want to project, who make you feel better about it and make that image feel more secure? Aren't you exhausted? call of this text implicitly is for you to come clean to come clean as a path to healing to come clean because even though it's humbling you have the promise that God exalts the humble it's been said that pride is the enemy of hope pride is a source of false hope it tells us we're okay when we aren't but it ultimately blinds us to the only thing that can lead to real change. It's the enemy of hope because it keeps you from seeing that you've got to be able to admit you're empty and have nothing to offer before you're ready to receive the only thing that can change you, that can give eyes to those who don't have them, that can give life to those who are dead. Your pride is keeping you from the only thing that gives you any hope. So come clean as a path to healing. You've got to acknowledge that you've got nothing to offer on your own, that you are a slave to your sin, no matter how you've grown to be free of them, and that the step towards receiving God's grace has to begin with you acknowledging your problem honestly and openly. And here's the promise, that though you and, and, and others that you know are not strong enough to deliver you from the things you have done, God is the beautiful promise of verse 16, which opens up to us the whole expanse of the New Testament, is that God, looking around, imagining him almost like a human who would just look around and and see the landscape, seeing that there was no one to intervene, 
that everyone alike had given themselves over to this broken culture. God intervenes on his own. And his own arm reaches down, strong to save. And there is nothing that is too big for the arm of the Lord who holds all of the waters of the earth in the palm of his hands, who, who commands the stars and they go where he wants them to, who calls them all forth by name. This God has intervened because he is the only one who can change the sorts of cultures like those that Israel had given themselves to. Ultimately, this verse, is, as small and short as it is, points us to a really similar passage in Romans chapter 3. Roman, in Romans 3, Paul quotes from Isaiah 59, from the passage we just read. It's just one of his sermon texts in that letter. And he quotes from it, making a point that is made right here in Isaiah 59, that there is no one who's righteous. Nobody's done what they should have. Romans 3, Paul says... Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown to us apart from the law because everyone has failed the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And here's why that righteousness is the only one any of us can afford to hope on. There is no distinction. There is no other. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified, are made right, are made secure, are given identity that lasts and won't topple over by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. It's only through faith in this redemption given to you as a gift that you can be set free from the drive to abuse all those that you come in contact with. The picture really is that bleak. Apart from God, you're going to abuse everyone that you know. But, if you're honest enough to confess your problem and to turn to the resources provided to you by God's own arm, then you have, in those two steps, the step of confession and the step of faith, all the resources that are necessary for putting to right the cultures that are broken by a lack of trust in God. Because when you come to a, a, a true sense of yourself, one that leads you to admit who you are and what you aren't, the othering that leads to all the exploitation we've been talking about goes away. Because you realize there is nothing anyone else is guilty of that you aren't guilty of and worse. You realize that fundamentally at root, you are not different than the guards at Auschwitz or whatever else. And when you turn to faith in God, what you find there is a security that isn't yours to uphold. It isn't yours to prop up. What you find there is a gift to you of of an identity that is so certain that no one else can threaten it when you really own it. And so you don't have to fear others as competitors. You don't have to outpace them you don't have to try to tear them down because you have all that you ever need in place of competitiveness and violence of exploitation what you inherit is a freedom to give yourself away what you inherit is what the law was always meant to produce a loving of your neighbors like yourself what you what what this makes possible is I'll close with this Described for us in Romans 12. When you're open about who you are, 
and when you're confident in who God can make you, then you rejoice with those who rejoice. You're not jealous of their success. You rejoice. And you weep with those who weep. You don't glory in other people's sorrow. You don't enjoy their pain. You aren't haughty, but you associate with the lowly because you don't need to get anything from them, right? You're not wise in your own sight. You don't repay evil for evil. You live peaceably with all. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. His interests are yours. Father, we want this kind of community. We know that you have set the church up to be just that. A countercultural culture. A way of relating to each other that just doesn't make any sense unless you are trustworthy, unless you're holding us up. We want that for our church. We want the things that must happen in each of us to happen. We want to be honest about our sin without fear. We want a love for each other that's rooted in your love for us. We want to be secure in who we are in Jesus so that we're free to give ourselves away to each other. We want something supernatural. And we don't have the resources to pull it off. So we pray to you that your own arm would intercede that you would bring salvation and healing to us as you've promised to do through your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.